Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined with the OG, the original guru, the one and only Bobby Shue. Bobby, it's so good to see you, my man. The original guru. That's hilarious, man. Uh, thank you, Jose. It's really, uh, I'm flattered, man, to be here. Um, man, you. you know, uh, I've been a you know, huge fan, a uh, huge fan of, uh, of your playing for years, but, um, you know, I really became fascinated by you when, uh, actually Adolfo Acosta is probably the, the guy who, who was responsible for this. Adolfo was like, man, you really should talk to Bobby because you guys think the same way. Yeah. I was coming from the martial arts perspective and we were talking about some, some things about life because you and Bobby would hit it off because you guys kind of process information the same way. And I'm like, Wow, and then and as I really started to, to to study you a little bit more, then obviously we've got a ch- couple chances to to hang in person. I have really come to respect you so much more because of your approach to life and learning. And I think that's the thing that I really want to talk with you about today is about your your personal processes and and the things that make you uh, the unique person that you are. So. Um, Let's let's uh, let's dive into that a little bit. I mean, have you always had this voracious appetite for for knowledge? I have. Uh, I don't know exactly why. When I was, I was born. Well, I'll say this: I was born at a very early age, <laughs> <laughs> and I stole that from from PDQ Bach. Love Peter Shickley. <laughs> yeah, it's Peter Shickley. I think it's, in, it's it opens up a, a book, and he says, "I was born at a very early age." <laughs> but um, I, you know, my childhood was kind of unique uh, uh, in that I was a very hyper child, and, and now I guess I'm a very hyper old man, you know. But uh, my mom probably had a hell of a difficult time with me as a kid because I was very active um and she had well i was you know i don't like to blow smoke but uh i was i was a little smarter than the average kid i guess in a lot of ways i learned very quickly Mm -hmm. you know for whatever reason i was blessed with the the ability to have cognitive moments about materials my mom trying to handle my energy as a child uh, my mom always wanted to be artistic in a way but she was not provided with the environment as a kid and growing up and everything so she never really developed that but she got me like at about I don't know maybe a year and a half to two years old uh, she got me on the floor with a box of crayons and a big pad and started teaching me how to draw, you know. My mom was not a great artist, but she was a doodler. Uh-huh. And if she got on the phone and she got a pencil, and by the time she got off of a half-hour conversation, the phone book had little flowers and okay. was all around the edges. Yeah. You know, she did all that kind of stuff. But she got me drawing at the age of about a year and a half to two years old, somewhere around in there. And... I did my first oil painting when I think I was six. Okay. And uh, 
all through school, I won a lot of blue ribbons in uh, state fair contests, school art contests and things like that for paintings and stuff, you know. And I was pursuing that very avidly. In addition, on the musical side, uh, I was, I, my mom and I lived, my mom had me out of wedlock. So there was a difficult situation for her, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. um, and I was, I was not supposed to live. My mom tried to, funny thing is, it, my mom actually, funny, I, I never expected to be talking to you about this, but my mom, at one point when she came out and visited us in LA, she sat down and wrote up like about a 15 page history of me from the day I was born. I was born blue, not breathing. Oh. And this left ear of mine was torn halfway off. And uh, you can see it sticks out a little bit more than the other one. You can't see it, but the left one's going, I'm over here. <laughs> you know. But it ripped about halfway down and they had to, after they got me breathing, they, I was in my grandmother's house and they took me in the sink and this was before ice cubes. They had those big blocks of ice and they started right. it up with a pick, throwing ice and cold water on me to get me breathing. That was my first start on planet earth, you know? Wow. And I went through a lot of my childhood um, with respiratory problems, uh, uh, but, uh, what they call it, um, I can't remember what they, uh, whooping cough, mm -hmm. things like that. I would have to miss school. They put a, like a, a plastic thing over my head and pump like this atomizer stuff into the tent. And I'd be laying under this plastic sheet with comic books and and a box of crayons drawing and stuff like that you know and yeah. uh, that was my childhood mm -hmm. and the in, in addition i lived in the house with my grandmother and my mom and a couple of aunts you know and they liked music they used to play a lot of 78s not jazz they played like about the hippest thing they ever played was there was one harry james track called james session which was a uh, I, I don't remember it much, but but they mostly played like Wayne King, Guy Lombardo. My mom liked the great Caruso, Mario Lanza, things like that. Okay. And we used to listen on Sunday night to a thing called uh, the Bell Telephone Hour, I think it was called. And it was like, I think it was the New York Philharmonic or something. They played Sunday night, an hour of classical music on the radio. Mm -hmm. This is all before televisions. There were no TVs back in those days. So we'd all gather around in my mom, my grandmother's living room and we'd listen. And I was laying there in my diapers, you know, right. on a little mat on the floor. But I grew up listening to a lot of music, you know, around the house. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I so there was something I was absorbing something there. I don't know. It took me a lot of years before I realized that one of the things that is very important and in this whole process of developing along the pathway of artistic and creative things, is if you're provided with an environment that has those things in it, paintings and music and, and literature and things of those that sort, it's, it has an influence on you, of course. I mean, that would be obvious. You know, if you grow up in a baseball family, you're going to fall in love with baseball or something, you know? Right, right. Uh, but anyway, 
to cut to the chase a little bit, I, I had all these health problems as a kid. And when I was 10 years old, uh, I switched from a parochial school to a public school. Um, and the first day of class, a lady came into the, the, the fifth grade classroom and said, uh, uh, do, would any of you kids like to join the band? And I went, join the band in <laughs> my head. <laughs> up in the air and I went hell yeah that sounds like fun and my stepfather my second stepfather which is where I got the name Shu that's not my blood name at all it was my second stepfather and uh, he had played the trumpet for a couple of years in elementary school and I remember there was one in the closet and he pulled it out one time and tried to play on it and sucked and he sounded terrible but I had never seen a trumpet before so I remembered that so anyway, I got started on the trumpet at the age of 10 in the fifth grade. And he sat with me and showed me how to buzz my lips. You know, like he told me to pretend uh, this is, I've talked about this before, so this is going to be a bit redundant. But he, he asked me to pretend I had a little piece of tobacco on the tip of my tongue and just spit it out and go like, <coughs> <coughs> and I went, what are we doing? I thought well, he was going to show me how to play the trumpet. I'm spitting tobacco, you know? But anyway, <clears throat> for whatever reason, I could do it. Then he handed me the horn with the mouthpiece in it. And he put it up to me and I went, <clears throat> and he said, no, 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 no. Drop your jaw and open that up. And so I went, I went, oh, shit, these are easy to play. <laughs> you know, that was like the first three minutes. Uh-huh. You dig? Yeah, and yeah. What was interesting about that, now I can look back after 70 years of playing, and I have students that come to me with setting issues, and one of the big problems with the setting issues is almost everybody I run into plays too tight in here. They play with their lips too close together. They don't control the aperture. And the people don't really understand how that works. Well, you know, I've since studied quite an awful lot of medical journals and a lot. My shelves are covered with anatomy books and neuro neuroscience books and all kinds of stuff, medical stuff. Right. I study an awful lot of that because there's a science underlying what we do. The other thing is that um, I, I, you know, I, over the years, I've been working with different horn companies and stuff, not necessarily designing instruments, but helping them modify them or improve instruments and stuff. I'm not smart enough to sit down and tell you how to, if you just gave me a pencil and paper and said, design a trumpet, I, I don't know all of the numbers and everything, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I know it's got to have tubing and valves and stuff like that, but, you know, I mean, to me, I mean, I, I I just try to make and help people improve an instrument so it plays better. Yeah. Um, and I spent I've been forty six years with Yamaha now, and that's been not only a fantastic relationship, but it's been a great education too because some of the people with that company, like Bob Malone, for instance, you know, yeah. who's the a genius when it comes to these things, you know, and you know that. Yeah. The guy, it's like he, he's from another planet. He knows stuff that I don't think anybody else knows. He comes up with 
with things about acoustical physics that that he applies and he's taught me all this stuff. So anyway, you know, back to the point I'm trying to make is that when I took up the trumpet, it started solving my respiratory problems. Mm. And the reason for it, I, it took me 40 more years of playing or so before I sat down with a respiratory a cardiopulmonology doctor and, and who told me, and I demonstrated the trumpet, my trumpet playing and the yoga breath and all of that stuff. I took it in the, with a practice mute to his office. And he watched me play and he put some, some wires on me and checked out some numbers and stuff. And he, <laughs> after I played, he said, you know, that trumpet is why you're alive. He mm-hmm. says that thing it improved your respiratory elasticity of your lung. Mm-hmm. It started to exercise your respiratory system. And so the trumpet is one of the things that why I'm sitting here talking to you today, you know? Yeah. That's a very interesting thing for me, you know, in a sense, you know, a lot of people have no idea that, that I had such ridiculous health problems when I was a kid. My, my stepfather's shoe, he used to always think I was just a sickly little kid, you know, mm-hmm. and he used to get pissed off of the, uh, some of the problems that I had and wondered, you know, what was going on, but I don't know, he was not a thoughtful, caring person anyway, you know, right. but, yeah. Yeah. but anyway, the whole point about it is, Jose, is that, um, you know, when I was young and listening to all that music and everything and playing the trumpet, I had such an easy time with the trumpet, it was like a piece of cake, you know? Yeah. He taught me how to read, he taught me the fingerings, I remembered it, it was easy. I could sight read immediately. I got the book the first night and I played half of the book before they put me to bed. I went to the next day on a, on a, um, at elementary school, I went into to beginning band, which was in the principal's office. It was seven people in the beginning band, you know, and I went into the first day of beginning band and, and the teacher was named Joyce Johnson. She was a, a classical violin player and a viola player or something. And she said, oh, did you get the trumpet? Did you get the book? And I says, yeah. But I says, I'm sorry. I, 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 tried to, I tried to play all of the tunes last night, but my parents made me go to bed. She looked at me like, what? <laughs> so she opened the book to the back. She says, did you play this one last night? I said, no, I didn't play that one. She said, can you play it now? And I sat, read it and played it. And she said, go back to class. You're not going to be in this beginning band. She says, you come to the junior high school on Saturday morning, you're going to be in the advanced band. Well, I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Right. But I auditioned for the advanced band on Saturday morning and I got second chair. I'd only had the trumpet in my hand for like 20, few minutes. Yeah, right, right, right. The whole point about it, and it, it, I thought that was natural, you see? And it took me a lot of years of playing to understand that not every kid I sat next to had that natural skill. Mm-hmm. But what the skills were that it took me a lot of years to, of teaching and studying and what learning was and so forth to realize what is it that, that what is talent? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, what is this? Why is, can't everybody do that? Why, what made my journey so easy, you know? Mm-hmm. What made that 
so piece of cake for me. Well, you know, that, that's, that's an interesting uh, topic because that's, that's one that, that I've been fascinated with for a number of years as well. And um, the, the book, I believe, is called The Talent Code. Uh, I believe the author is Daniel Coyle. But yeah, Bill Coyle, the talent code. I know it very well. Yeah, that's that's such an amazing book, and you know the the idea that it's like there, there is no natural, but there are naturals in a way. You know that that we we all kind of have these uh, because of our experiences, our unique physiology, the way our brains are wired. We may be predisposed to learn things at a faster rate, but especially like the studies that were done in terms of like prodigies and how few child prodigies actually uh, maintain any level of superior abilities as they get older. Um, so the, it's the learning processes and, and our, our abilities to, to absorb and to apply. And I mean, it, 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 but on the other hand, it, it sounds like to me in some ways that you didn't choose to play the trumpet, the trumpet chose you. So that, uh, you know, it's like everything, everything kind of uh, coalesced for you in your life uh, with that instrument. And I think that that's a, that is a really amazing thing. And, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of been a blessing for, for you and for so many other people. Well, I think that I've always been glad that he didn't have a tuba in the closet. <laughs> you know? But, accordion. Yeah. But, you know, it, it wouldn't have mattered what instrument it was because I, I only, I only picked that instrument because that's what he had, you know? Right. If it had been a clarinet, I'd have probably been a clarinet player, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. But the thing was that, and we're talking about this talent thing and, and the thing about Daniel Coyle's book, and I guess, you know, there's an awful lot of, there's some videos of, the talent code and there's Daniel Coyle, even on YouTube, you can hear him speak about neuroplasticity and all of these things, you know, that, and this is an astonishing discovery in the field of neuroscience, you know, that uh, something as, as profound as neuroplasticity that you can go in and, and restructure uh, and, and build new habits and make corrections in the way people have developed bad habits from bad influences or bad suggestions or bad teaching or whatever Mm -hmm. but the other thing uh that i wanted to say is i mentioned this thing about what is talent and when i lived in las vegas back in the 60s and everything a bunch of us of of musicians uh we used to get up we used to sit up till four or five in the morning sometimes just talking about music and talent and uh, who who can improvise why can't everybody improvise you know why can't some people swing you know what what's and are all people exactly the same you know mm-hmm. and what is what what's you know trying to figure out you know humanity uh, philanthropy uh psychology right. all these things put together you know and we used, we used to discuss talent, you know, is it genetic? Is it in the genome system? Is it in your, if it, if your grandmother was a great tuba player, is that going to help you? Or, and, and I don't think it has anything to do with genetics. You know, I think it has to do, as I was saying earlier with environment, mm-hmm. that could be a big influence on talent, 
But there are two things that I think are natural talents. And I, this is something that I've, I've observed from 66 years of teaching, sort of, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the two gifts, I think, that people can be born with that are going to direct them or make it easier for them to play music are an internal sense of rhythm. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to count bars. You can feel a measure go by. You can feel four measures go by. You can feel 12 measures, eight measures, 32 bars. You, you don't have to sit there. Okay, if, if you have 231 measures rest during a violin concerto, do you have to go 239, 234, 240, 234? Well, wait a minute. No, just listen to the piece of music and know where you come in. Right. Okay, so that involves the second gift, which is a good ear. Doesn't have anything to do with perfect pitch, because as a lot of people don't know, it's it's actually perfect pitch is detrimental more so than beneficial, because we live in a very imperfect world of music. Oh, you, wow. A lot of people don't know that it's impossible to build any instrument in tune on this planet. You cannot build anything. I don't care what it is. And the reason for that has to do with the overtone series and the reason why we have a tempered scale. Mm-hmm. Is if you go back in history <laughs> a few hundred years and you listen to the early harpsichords or any kind of thing, the overtone series, until you temper it, they sound out of tune. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you listen to, if you, we were able now to go back and listen to a, a, some sort of a, musical group in the 1400s or 15th, 13th, 14th, 15th century, you wouldn't like it because it would be so erratically out of tune. It would sound like, yeah, what the hell is going on? Tune that. But see, they didn't know how to tune it up until they figured out how to temper the scale. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's like acoustical physics kind of thing. But right. you get into overtone series and and uh, the, the first first overtone partial is a, is an octave and a third away above, you know? Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, if you put that, if you played like a low C and then an E, an octave and a third above, that E is going to be out of tune in relationship to that C, you know? And it's like, so this is this whole thing. But a, a, an ear is relative pitch. That would be like you could have so let's take that lick. It doesn't matter what note I start on, I can play that lick by ear. Right. I could push down any fingering on the trumpet and play that lick. You know, maybe maybe not, you know, anthropology or straight note chaser, but you know, I mean, there are fingering patterns that we have to learn, but the idea is a relative pitch ear is one of the most valuable gifts in the world. That and an internal sense of rhythm. If you have those two things, playing music is going to be a much easier uh, activity for you to gravitate towards and gain skill in. It's the person who plays strictly visually rather than auditory. Everything is like looking at a piece of paper and saying, oh my God, I hope I don't miss a note. You know, that's the big flaw in music education anyway is that if you go back in history uh, far enough, uh, hundreds of years back when 
we had court trumpeters and so forth. And a, a court trumpeter would, there was an entry of a king and queen visiting and the trumpeter had to put on his feathered hat and his tight pants and go up there and play a fanfare. And if his shops were not in good shape, or if the blacksmith hadn't made him a good mouthpiece, yeah, <laughs> or whatever, and the guy gets up there, if he plays a horrible fanfare, it embarrasses the empire, you know? So yeah. they used to, you know, I, I remember an article in ITG years ago that they talked about <laughs> that some places they used to actually decapitate the, the court trumpet player for a poor performance, you know? Yeah. And so I think the whole fear of miss, missing notes came from the fact that, you know, you want to kill the blacksmith for making you a shitty mouthpiece or something like that. You know? yeah, so, social, social conditioning with that, I guess, you know. Yeah, but see, we've music education has this, this uh, constant uh, fear of the issue of right and wrong, which is so deeply embedded as a contra survival, pro survival thing down inside of each and every one of us goes back to primordial times, you know? Right. I mean, we're not fighting pterodactyls. I mean, those things were gone a long time before Neanderthals and Homo erectus and Homo sapiens came around. Dinosaurs were gone a long time before we were here, you know? Yeah. We're not, we're not worried about dinosaurs, but, but we are, we have to try to survive. And so we have this right, wrong issue going on and the minute you are made wrong by a band director <laughs> for pointing Bobby that's an A flat not an A natural or something in front of the flute player who you want to date you know or something like that right it creates a, a, a wrong reaction in the brain the amygdala dominates in the you don't get the cerebrum the positive parts of the cerebrum cerebellum in the brain you get the amygdala which is the fear right fight or flight mm-hmm. <laughs> and what it does is it stimulates a whole bunch of the wrong kind of adrenaline and and you're nervous and you're freaked out and you're trying to play a horn and you're trying to find joy and and spirituality and everything in the music and then there's this this looming over your head is this fear of making a mistake right you know? so yeah you know i've all the years of teaching i get so pissed off about the musical education system in the schools. And I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a contagion of aberration. They call it, you know, it's like a disease that goes from one generation to the next. And, and it's not that people are evil or, or anything like that. It's just, it's just something that it's, it's a habitual kind of attitude that that permeates our whole field. And, and the next thing you know, it's like all the kids in the band room are just, they're like terrified about missing a note instead of just, you know, loosening up and having a fun time. And what the hell is the big deal about missing notes? It's like, it's Shakespearean to air as human, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and that's, uh, we, like you're saying, societally, we kind of have developed this aversion to making mistakes or to, to failing. Uh, you know, the, the failure has, uh, it, it's a, it's a bad word. It's a four letter word. Um, but you know, th- that's the only way you learn, you know, if you, if you never screw up, if you never lose, if you never fail, you really never learn, you know, the, the greatest lessons are from the things that we can't do. 
So uh, I think that, that that kind of mind shift is, is critical. But the problem is it's like the, it's the dark side of the habitual tendencies of the brain. The reason we have habits is to make it easier for us to do things. You know, the, we save the processing capabilities uh, you know, when something becomes habitual. We don't have to think about doing it. We just do it. And that's a great thing. But when, when the habit's no longer serving us, then we become a slave to that dogma that we've created. And I think look, with the, with the educational system, whether it be music or just education in general, uh, you know, what served us 10 years ago, let alone a hundred years ago, uh, no longer serves us in the same way. So I, I, I think the, the inability, the inflexibility, the unwillingness to look at something and say, is this really working? And if it's not working, if it's not giving me the results that I want or need, what do I need to do to change it? And be willing to embrace that change, not as something that thinking, oh, I was wrong then. No, you were getting the results then. You were right then. But things have changed. So you need to change to, to, uh, to meet the current needs. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, uh, I agree completely with you. And the other thing I it just came to mind while you were speaking was the book you sent me on the, on the mindful stuff, you know. And I quite often talk to my students about things along those lines that you have three options, the future, the past, or now. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. You know, you know and both the future and the past are actually kind of what you could, we call them illusions because mm -hmm. they're not real. The only thing that's real is now. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. George Carlin used to do a funny thing. He says, there's a great moment in time I want to tell you about. It's just one of the most amazing. Oh, oh gee, there it went. Sorry. You know, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I tell my students, like you have three options when you sit down and you're you're practicing for instance what are you thinking about while you practice i hope i don't miss a note because i have this thing next week and you're now you're not in now right you're in the future right. or god i sucked on this last week when i played this you know you mm -hmm. now you're in the past and right. sometimes you bounce between the past and the future. Occasionally you pass through now for a split second while you put some valve oil on or some <laughs> finger or something. But, you know, yeah, yeah. for the most part, the, I think the average person when they sit down and practice an instrument is nowhere near the, the percentage of now that they get is like minimal. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, I really love that book that you sent me. And as soon as an Adolfo, uh, who you mentioned earlier, you know, he, he's like a son to me in a lot of ways, you know, he was here for dinner last night, as a matter of fact, yeah. but he, he, he saw that book and he says, Oh, Jose, you know, he, I didn't realize he knew you and all that. But, but anyway, uh, years ago, I, I read a book by a saxophone teacher. I don't remember his name or even the name of the book, but it had to do with 
was talking about how to practice, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I always like to read what other people say about things. I like other people's opinions. I don't always agree with their opinions. And I sometimes read some things that people say that are pretty stupid. Hey, get, don't, don't eat my, don't eat my house. I got two new puppies, man. And they're like, uh-huh. Going crazy. They think the house is made of dog food, you know. It should be. It should be. Yeah. Just, just remember, Bobby. You know, like they, like they say, you know, opinions are like assholes, right? Everybody's got one, and most of them stink. I. Okay. So, but what I wanted to say is that this book. He was talking in about a, a little kind of a yoga breath. Now, of course, you know me and the yoga breathing and all of that, and right. I have and my respiratory system issues that we've talked about earlier. And I have so many books on meditation, and I've done that. My wife and I used to meditate and do things like that, and Tai Chi, and we did all kinds of stuff. You know, when we <laughs> when we could bend our legs and stuff like that. You know, but. This in this book, he talked about a little a quick breath. It's like, you, in, in the value. I don't know. Have you ever read this book called Breath by James Nestor? I have not. I'll have to check that out. Well, what it is, I mean, not necessarily telling you you should read it, but it, uh, James is a guy that had respiratory problems as a child, and he grew up. And I'm reading this book. And I'm saying this is a book about me. Mm-hmm. You know, and he went through childhood respiratory problems and he as his years later he kept going to different gurus and the himalayas and different places you know hindu whatever's and learning different kinds of methods of breathing and uh, uh all of this and so forth to try to straighten out his life his health uh there's an awful lot of talks about nasal breathing the value of breathing in, in intake through the nose Mm-hmm. In the book, it goes back to the history of of the human race. If you go back uh, far enough um, and look at the evolutionary line of humans, and I don't know, this is probably just taps on a, a thing. My wife and I did the several genome tests, the different ones. We've done National Geographic, uh, Ancestry, and 23andMe. 23andMe was the best one. Okay. It's the most specific, but I got back and I even have it. I saw it just yesterday. Like you get all these reports. Oh, you're a Neanderthal. I have Neanderthal roots. Yeah, yeah, two percent. But uh, if you go back far enough to Neanderthal, and then Homo erectus, which is precedes Homo sapiens, and you look at the in this book, it talks about the evolutionary line of the shapes and of the body, the nasal thing was, if you go back to uh, the apes and things which from which we come, the, look at the noses on gorillas. Right. Andes, they're huge. Mm-hmm. Huge nares in there, you know, because respiratory nasal breathing was so absolutely important to survival that, uh, will you guys stop fighting? Uh, dogs. <laughs> anyway, anyway, the, the over the period of through evolution, our noses have shrunk. Okay. 
you know, and we don't have the clarity of nasal passages. We have mm -hmm. deviated septums. We have all kinds of things, you know. When I was young and the respiratory problems that I had, they had to cut out my tonsils and the, and the, the uh, what do they call them? Uh, adenoids. Uh, adenoids, yeah. I started to say androids. That were, <laughs> oh, no. Adenoids in tonsils. They cut them out when I was about a, less than a year old. Wow. The respiratory problems, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the whole point about it is uh, there's a, a nice little nasal breath that this guy talked about in there and uh it's to take in through the nose like five counts like five seconds you know you mm -hmm. go and you you silently count to five while you do it you go and then you hold for five seconds two three four five and then three four five a little pause then you breathe in count five hold count five exhale count five right pause couple seconds you do this as a drill and what it does this breath it ties in with a meditation kind of a thing it's a mm -hmm. form of a yoga breath but oddly it gets you in the moment of now right is what it does and your good breathing habits get you in the now so i tell my students before you warm up do the breath how many i don't know five ten but do it until you feel like, wow, I'm actually here. Yeah. Now warm up. And when you do your flutter, lip buzzing and mouthpiece buzzing and so forth to, to get your whole embouchure and everything set up in your body connected to the horn, it's better to do it in the moment of now rather mm -hmm. than worrying about tomorrow or last week, you know? Right. So, and then I tell the students that if you start practicing and you start thinking about next week or, or last week, Put the horn down and do the breath again and get back in the moment and now. It's just a little drill. And I remember some other kinds of things I did in some psychology classes where they have you just touch things, mm -hmm. you know, touch the desk, touch your body, go touch the wall. Oh, oh, that's a chair there. Oh, my gosh. Oh, why look at this? Why it's a bottle of water, you know, and all yeah. of a sudden you find yourself in the moment. And yeah. If, if we, hey, take it easy, will you, please? Hey, dog. I got a male and a female, and they're about four months old, and they're just going, me, 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 me. The whole point about it is that I, I this whole thing about if we could learn the value of being in now for more of our life. Some people, I swear, I don't think they're ever there that I know. They're always walking around like zombies in in some space cadet world in another galaxy, even sometimes, you know. Yeah. And they say, Oh, I was having an out-of-body experience. God, I hope you don't do that while you're driving. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, well, that, that, it's, you get the point though, Jose. Yeah, yeah. This is, and I know you know about this because of the mindful thing that you and yet that you talk about in that book that you sent me, it's you're very onto that, you know, and maybe that's what Adolfo meant, but you and I are on the same plane, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it like it, it's the, with breathing, uh, 
you know, the the autonomic nervous system. You know, the, you you have the well, you have more than than two parts, but the big the big two are the the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is your fight or flight. You know, that's when the amygdala is getting fired off and everything. Um, and the parasympathetic, you know, that's your rest and digest. And the power of breathing to regulate the balance between those, because you don't you don't want to have your sympathetic completely shut off, because that's what gives you action. So from a from a practical perspective, that's what's going to uh, keep your awareness up, keep your facility up. If you're playing trumpet, you know that's going to keep you on your game. But if it's overriding everything else, and that's when the stress and anxiety comes in. The sympath- the parasympathetic is your ability to just relax and chill out. So when when you exhale deeply, that activates the parasympathetic. When you inhale deeply, that activates the sympathetic. So when you have that nice balance of breathing that goes on, then you find yourself in that space where you are in the moment, you know, you're not, you're not thinking about the present or you're, you're experiencing the present because you're not thinking about the, the past or the future too much. So, yeah, I, for me, uh, you know, people would always say, oh yeah, how do you meditate and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, for me, meditation a lot of times is, uh, is playing, you know, that's a meditation to me because I'm breathing. I'm trying to be aware of myself. Uh, I'm fortunate that I, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not in LA trying to make a living, you know, playing on, on TV, TV shows or stuff like that. So I have a little, little level of flexibility with that. But, you know, I, I can play to enjoy myself and I can learn and listen and just enjoy that process. So because my breath is activated, because my mind is on the present moment, uh, that's, a, that's a form of meditation. I don't have to, you know, light incense and, and do any goofy stuff. You know, it's just it's, it's practicality right there. I find it very interesting, you know, to, um, as I keep going back to this overview of uh, our educational system of the field of pedagogy as, as pertains especially to the trumpet, which is the, the only one I really know the majority about. But I, there's the human being. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're looking at humanity and, and the human mind and how it works and how we uh, set up, you know, the parasympathetic sympathetic and all of these things that you're talking about but you know we have we have this autopilot thing that we we need to rely upon right so that because in order to to play a musical instrument all the things that are necessary on the on the physiological side for one thing and then the acoustical things that are properties of of you dealing with resonant factors in your instrument and so forth like that and you put all of those things that are necessary to comprehend in order to play, you can't possibly be consciously thinking about things. Right. But, you know, you would go, you would explode, you know? Yeah. But the, 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 one of my biggest, you know, kind of complaints, I guess, and frustrations is because I've been, you know, uh, so many years involved in in what yeah, I call teaching, but I, I don't like to even use that word because I'm not so sure there is really a, such a thing as teaching. Because I wrote a big article that I probably should send you. It's called Teaching Versus Learning. Mm-hmm. And what's important here is learning. It's the input and assimilation of the information and the cognitive moments that a person has that the recipient right. has. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, 
is the pitcher more important than the catcher? <laughs> you know, I mean, but in, in the process of, of so-called teaching, it's, you have so much opinions that are dominant and very little factual science that, that is passed on. And the average trumpet teacher knows very little about the science of the body, about what a muscle is, how it functions, what tendons are here and there, how the respiratory system, when it, people say, oh, the diaphragm is a muscle. Well, it's not really. It's a form of a gigantic membrane. It's got some muscle parts to it. Right. But it's it doesn't like a muscle. It can't you can't exercise a diaphragm and make it swell up like a bicep or anything. Like that. You can't do that. And, and the the diaphragm it has a particular function. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that and the respiratory system, and I just I hear interviews with people talking about playing. They say, well. It, Air is not really that important, you know. I said, no, I guess an automobile can go, you can drive it down to the grocery store without any gas. I don't fucking think so. Right. It is the fuel that generates any action. And our bodies need two things, air and water. Those are the two primary things. And you can survive on on good, clean air and water. You can survive a long time without food. Right. In... You know, and the thing about it is how many trumpet teachers out there know the respiratory system or can talk about it or what, what a diaphragm is or what the rib excursion factors are with, with you know, and in the, and I know people who say, oh, you got to push your belly forward towards your belt buckle when you play a note. Well, absolutely. That's one of the quickest ways in the world to, to, to generate a hernia, you know, because you don't, you're going two directions. You're trying to push the air upward and out at the same time, push your belly this way. Well, this is the support mechanism down here. Right. And that core area, if you activate the core area, it, it's like a master switch for the whole, the, you know, the thorax. Mm-hmm. And what we do is people talk about diaphragmatic breathing. Well, that's more for vocalists than anything. Mm-hmm. and using the larynx but what we we don't use the larynx we bypass it and we we're using what's called thoracic breath not diaphragmatic breath you know and we're using the it's kind of a whole body thing you're not worried about your toes and your the heels of your feet when you play a trumpet but you know if you if you hooked up electrodes to somebody like Wayne Bergeron's feet you'd probably find that the muscles in his feet are probably doing a little bit of that when he does play Right. Who knows? I mean, we don't need to go measure our feet, but the point about it is it's not just people who do not understand how the body works at the optimum level play from up here. And almost everybody's playing high and shallow up in the upper part of their body and they get embouchure problems and they get facial this and that collapsing air leaking out the sides. They don't know how to pick a mouthpiece. They pick the wrong equipment because they, the equipment is trying to compensate for the failures in their body to function properly, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm forever grateful that 46 years ago, when Maynard Ferguson gave me that book on yoga breathing, the science of breath, Yogi Ramacharaka, when he gave me that book and I started uh, and Bud Brisboy showed me how to use it. 
And then a doctor who was studying with me, uh, I said, good God, doc, why, what's going on with this breath? Why does it work like this? And he said, read this book. And he gave me a book on respiratory system from medical school. And I went, what? The whole book? And he said, it won't hurt you. So, you know, I did. And, and that's the beginning. And that's why I have hundreds of books on medical stuff. I mean, I think I have pretty much every anatomy book that's published, you know. I mean, and, and you know, once you start reading them and stuff like this, you get facts. And so my whole game as a teacher, 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 is to try to separate facts from opinion in the field of, of teaching. I don't tell people how to play the trumpet. I show them the tools so they can go in the practice room and understand what has to occur for them to be able to play the way they want to play. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to predetermine somebody's voice, you know, but I don't, I mean, I don't know. I get very frustrated sometimes, Jose, with, I, I, I listen to interviews with people and they're famous players, you know, but they really don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, there's all kinds of processes that people use and about, airstream and about centering notes and bending notes and all this. And I come down to a, a couple of simple premises, one of which is practical application. If you do something in a practice room that doesn't exactly apply to how you play, you're teaching yourself something that has no application on the bandstand. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, if, I, if I did something that does not, that is opposite of what I need to do when I play, I've got a, a conflicting set of neuromuscular habits in the brain. And so when I go to play, does the stamp note bending thing creep up all of a sudden and I lose the center of my note, you know, because I'm trying to lower the pitch with my chops. That's, I don't agree with that. You know, Jimmy Stamp was a beautiful man and, and, but I think people need to analyze from a scientific point of view, the exact purpose behind all of the actions that you tell somebody to do. If you cannot tell me the purpose of it, what it's doing, then wait a minute, let's question whether it should be applied or not. You can have people like, you know, you know, put on a funny hat or sit on an, on an apple when they play, but it doesn't have anything to do with play. All right. Well, are, are you familiar with Bloom's Taxonomy? With what? Bloom's Taxonomy. No, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it was a method that was basically it's like a framework for evaluating educational goals and outcomes. Uh, is like mid fifties, I think it came out fifty six, something like that. Uh, it's been revised, and it's kind of a, a standard um, way of approaching the structure of of developing educational content. So the the they revised it in two thousand one, and, and the taxonomy is that uh, it's remember, understand, apply, analyze evaluate, create. And that should be, you know, in, in using this taxonomy, those are your objectives. You, know, you want your student to first be able to remember what you're we're telling them. But remembering is just 
you know, it's just the, the information there. Understanding is, is developing a, a cognitive level of knowledge. But that, that third step, that apply, if you can't apply the knowledge, then it's useless. Then the analyze, you have to be able to break it down. You know, that's the thing you're saying, you know, why does this work? Does it really work? Does it work in all these situations? Evaluate is, is to take a non-judgmental, more of a scientific approach to things and evaluate the, the worth, the, the risk reward, things like that. And then the ultimate is the create. You know, to How do you put this together to make something that is new? Uh, and it's kind of like uh, uh, Clark Cherry used, used to say, uh, uh, imitate, assimilate, innovate. And that, that's, that's a very similar kind of concept. And, and I think that, like you're saying with the educational thing, uh, we become, we've become so much beholden to tradition and dogma. You know, this is the way I was taught. This is the horn my teacher played. And this is the horn that I play. And this is, this is what you're going to play. Uh, you know, and nobody really wants to understand. They don't want to analyze. And, and that's one of the things that I really love about you, uh, is you, yeah, every time I've talked to you, uh, every time I talk to somebody who has talked to you, it's, you know, you're learning something new every day. You're, you're always looking to, to question what you know by, you know, you challenge your assumptions to create a deeper understanding. And I, I think that so many people, uh, they're afraid to do that. And that's, that's the thing that's holding them back. And, uh, I mean, how, how do you, how do you approach that in your, especially like in your, your teaching, you know, again, here we go, the teaching thing, your, uh, mentoring of people, your guidance, guiding them towards their own deeper knowledge of, of, uh, who they are and what they do on the horn. Um, you know, how do you do you, uh, encourage people to get into these kind of steps of critically evaluating uh, the validity of, of what they're doing and, and helping them to, to develop a, their own understanding and approach to their, their, their craft? Well, I think the bottom line on, on the, and the answer, that's a huge question and everything, but how I always revert, I've learned over the years that Everything in the physical universe comes down to science. Mm 